everyone. My name is Jing Chai, and I'm a co-host of the Pulse podcast by One Digital Health. In this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Andrew Dudem, the founder and CEO of Hims and Hers. Hims and Hers is a telehealth offering that provides a modern approach to health and wellness. Their mission is to eliminate stigmas and make it easier for people to access quality care and treatment for conditions that impact their daily lives. Since launching in November 2017, Hims and Hers has raised approximately $260 million in funding and are one of the fastest growing direct-to-consumer brands in history. Recently, Hims and Hers has also announced that they are planning to go public through a merger with a special purpose acquisition company. Upon completion of the transaction, Hims and Hers will be traded on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker Hims. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us today at the Pulse Podcast. We're very excited to have you, especially as a Wharton alum. So Andrew is the founder and CEO of Hims and Hers and a co-founder and general partner at Atomic, a venture builder backed by Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen. Andrew graduated from Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania with a focus in entrepreneurial management and venture capital. So Andrew, we heard that you used to play cello all over the world. As a fellow cellist, although someone who dropped out after high school, I find that really impressive. Can you tell us about this experience and how it's shaped the way you see the world and potentially influenced your pivot into healthcare? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm excited to be here. So yeah, you know, in the beginning of my life, I wanted to be a rock and roll star is really the actual story behind the cello. And I told my mom when I was four or five, I wanted an electric guitar and really loud speakers and to rock out. And she convinced me that if I learned to play cello, that one day I could turn it sideways and then I would be an awesome guitar player. And so I was tricked into being an orchestra geek by my mom very successfully. So I played cello the majority of my life, you know, through my early teens, I was traveling the world, went to Carnegie Hall and played there when I was 13 played probably nearly 100 weddings around the Bay Area uh, throughout my team, teens. And what was really you know, powerful for me was kind of the entrepreneurial small business aspect of it. I would go down to Union Square in San Francisco on the weekends during the holidays, and I'd put a bucket out on the street, and I would set up my cello, and I'd play for four hours, and I would make a lot of money. And then I would schedule gigs for the weekends for weddings with a couple of friends and we'd play and we'd pick up a hundred bucks or 150 bucks for the day. And I think from an early age, having those tools and the confidence to build a schedule, to build a pipeline of demand and business to then save that money. I eventually bought my first car with that money when I was 17 or 18. You know, those were just really powerful lessons that I think were really influential in kind of empowering me to feel capable of starting my own business, you know, because from an early age, I kind of had managed that. And so it was just an amazing mix of clearly the creative art side of music, which I love, and I think has been a, a huge part of my success in building companies to date, which is just kind of the user experience, the beauty of it, kind of the holistic approach. But it was also just a really great learning experience in how to get a business going how to be the janitor, the accountant, the salesperson, the employee of the month, like how to be all of those things every single day and kind of run your own little shop. And so just a great learning experience for me. I never became, you know, a rock and roll star. 
Um, I did end up becoming a very good cellist, which, you know, I'm not sure if that was directly applicable to starting and running companies in and of itself, but I think the whole experience definitely was. That's incredible. Do you still play cello today or have you sort of hung that hat? Um, for the most part, I've, I've hung the hat, although my wife does request that I pull it off kind of the closet and off the wall. We've got it hung up, you know, every once in a while. So I, I do try to prove to myself that I, I still have it. That's exciting. Thanks for sharing that story. And so it sounds like you had that entrepreneurship bug from when you were young. Is that something that you sort of brought with you in terms of your intentions for what you wanted to do post Wharton? And has entrepreneurship always sort of been top of mind for you as a career path? I think in the background, a healthy disregard for authority has always existed, to be completely honest. So I'm not even sure it was as articulate and as thoughtful as entrepreneurship, as much as you know, I grew up with a father who started his own law practice, was gritty, you know, went to the local state school, and then outperformed um, and outnegotiated top attorneys from the Ivy Leagues, right? And I grew up with a grandfather on one side who was an immigrant who had nothing, who built a great business and, and was very successful. Another grandfather who built his own laundromat service and was very successful in that and loved it. And so I just, I was surrounded by mentors that were their own bosses. And I think they had the confidence to be their own boss and confidence that they could pull it off. And that a traditional path was never given to them. And as a result, they created their own path. And so I think I had that you know, autonomy built in. I had that maybe chip on my shoulder to prove it to myself that I could do the same thing. And I think you know, that had always been with me. So I, when I went to Warren you know, undergrad, I was in a lot of ways allergic to the traditional path. Um, while most of my friends were you know, excited about Goldman Sachs and New York City and, and the banking and the money potential and the growth and the kind of glamour of that lifestyle, because of the fact that everyone was excited about that path and that was the common path, I was almost just instinctively completely opposed to it. And so I figured, okay, well, I need my own path. I need to have my own. What is mine? Um, and I think what I found fairly instinctively was that I naturally gravitated towards building businesses and building things. And so while most of my colleagues and our peers in school were at Huntsman and were focused on like the corporate finance class, you know, finals coming up, I was hanging out at the engineering school trying to convince engineers to build things with me. Um, or I was, you know, trying to start up little businesses with the local stores in the in the area. And it got to the point where I clearly was not succeeding particularly well in classwork, but it was really thriving and enjoying what I was doing outside of it. So after sophomore year, I, I decided to leave and move out to San Francisco and join a early Sequoia Capital startup and actually kind of put my chops to use and see if I could pull it off. That's incredible. I think being in specifically at something like Warden, where there's so many defined tracks, having even the awareness that that's not the path for you. And I think supported and reinforced by your family and having so many strong role models who are individuals who took the path less traveled on. I think that was incredibly compelling. Obviously, you've had some experience wanting to start things and some earlier experience starting smaller companies. What was kind of the the germination point for Hims and Hers? I have been building with another Penn and Wharton, well, dropout, not actual graduate, Atomic Labs for a long time out in San Francisco, which was a studio, was a venture fund uh, where we would incubate and build companies from scratch. And I just really fell in love with this idea of 
small teams in big markets trying to do something completely different. And saying that with just 100K and four people, you can actually truly disrupt a huge industry. Like, I really believe that with a, a small amount of money and a few people, that's possible. And so with Hims and Hers, I think what got me excited was really this opportunity to unite you know, that entrepreneurial passion to innovate in an industry, but to do it in an industry that is larger than any else in the country, right? It's a $4 trillion market. It's one that hadn't been changed in 50 or 60 years. And so there was so much opportunity. There was so much technology to be built. The experience was so far from amazing and what it should be. So there's just huge gaps, but then also, you know, the ability to help a lot of people, you know, and actually build something that wasn't just fun and wasn't just innovative and wasn't just disruptive, but something that would actually, if done well, be the front door of what hundreds of millions of people in this country and maybe the world would use on a weekly basis to be their best self, to feel the best, to be the healthiest versions. And that is just a really rare opportunity. I think in building companies for 15 years, it's not often that you have the opportunity to disrupt such a large market that is so far behind and in doing so help so many people on a very personal and intimate level. And I think with healthcare um, and with hims and hers, we really had that opportunity in spades. And so it was really compelling to me. And it was something that I felt like I could spend 10, 20, 30, 40 years building. That's incredible. And many of our listeners are familiar with hims and hers. I know personally, I've seen the sort of slick Instagram branding and been on the website, totally different user interface than a lot of traditional telehealth companies. Can you first describe a bit about what hims and hers is for listeners who may not be as familiar? Yeah, absolutely. So hims and hers is a digital health company where you can come and get access uh, to world-class specialists and treatments and medications and management of conditions you're worried about. So from the comfort of your home, you can pick up your phone, go to forhims.com, you can go to forhers.com, and everything from psychiatric care, anxiety and depression management, all the way to customized dermatology treatments for your eczema or acne, all the way to sleep help and, or, and medication or hair loss or sexual health, a full start to finish experience that's beautifully branded and beautifully personalized for you. I'm all about kind of being your best and healthiest self. One thing you mentioned is this piece around the branding and the overall sort of essence of what Hims and Hers is. How would you characterize your vision for the brand? And why was this brand and, and the way that things, for example, even the font or, or the color, why, why was that so important for you when building the company? I think I've really experienced the difference in love and loyalty that people have when they pick up a product and it just resonates with them, right? When a customer, when a person, when we fall in love with a brand, when we fall in love with a product, we love it and we talk about it. And it's something we're so excited to use and we use it all the time and then we buy more of it. And, and it's just, there's a difference between a product that is great and a product that you fall in love with. And I think when I look at healthcare, there's no part of the experience that I love. And in fact, there's really no part of the experience that I think is even good, right? It, they're all just essentially miserable, but get the job kind of done, right? It's a cold experience. It's clinical. It's not personalized to you at all. It wastes your time. It wastes your money. It makes you feel sick. 
I mean, it's like the lowest MPS industry in the country. And it's my belief that in the next 10 years, that's going to change. Because just like every other industry in this country, customers will have choice. People are going to put their money towards the brands and towards the experiences that they love. And in healthcare, that's not how it works. In healthcare, there's all these perverse incentives of insurance and reimbursements and what's doctors and what network and is this covered and is it not? And I think that's going away. And what's going to replace it is the ability for you and me or anybody listening for very affordable prices to go to a business like him's and hers and say, for 20 bucks, I'm going to get treated for acne. And it's going to be a beautiful experience. And the treatments that show up to my door are going to be personalized and smell great. And I'm going to love them. That's my bet. I really believe that's what's going to happen in the next 10 years across all of healthcare. And so if that's true, what's going to matter is that people love the product and that they love the experience and that they love how we talk to them. And so people know hims and hers, not as a telehealth company, but as a brand that they love, right? They're used to seeing the TV commercials with Snoop Dogg or the fact that JLo is like using, you know, the hair mask on Instagram or the fact that the New York City subway stations have like really hilarious out of home campaigns, like whatever it might be. They have an emotional attachment to the brand, how we talk to them, the authenticity of it sometimes the irreverence of it, right? The spunk of it, the beauty of the products, how they taste, how they smell. And those are the things that I think deeply resonate with people and eventually build a trust and a love and a loyalty. And I think I want to bring that humanity and that love and that excitement to healthcare. And, and I think it's not only a desire to do it because it's a better experience, but it's also a desire because if you do that, I think you could build a massively transformational company, a company that's you know worth hundreds of billions of dollars um, because the industry is simply just that large. That makes a lot of sense. And part of healthcare is that it is so intimate to the individual person. And as a result, there's sort of this trust or credibility that any sort of company needs to build with individuals. Given sort of how Hims and Hers was at the beginning of some of this shift towards telehealth and consumers may not have been as familiar. Did you find it challenging at all to win that initial trust and win that initial buy-in with consumers? I think we had a really contrarian approach to building trust. And I think it was kind of misunderstood in the beginning, but I, but I believe that it's worked, which is that you build trust through each moment of the experience being beautiful and thoughtful and considered. And when you get that package that shows up on your door and you open the hims or hers package and it smells good and it looks good and the bottle feels good and it, the texture is amazing. And then you use the shampoo and it's like, man, this is like the best shampoo I've ever used. Like that, each of those moments, you are building trust with the consumer. And I think in healthcare, historically, how you've built trust is by saying you're trusted, right? And you're throwing up pictures of doctors. And you're talking about how the fact that it's FDA assured. And for anybody that's also seen spam on their internet and things are popping up, they also use those same tactics to be trusted, 100% guaranteed, 100% approved, guaranteed to work, right? Those types of superlatives are um, the cheap way of building trust. And I think the healthcare system has relied on white coats and sterile experiences and white and blue designs to feel trusted. And so we'd said, hey, we're going to do the opposite. We're not even going to talk about healthcare. We're not even going to talk about the fact that these doctors went to Harvard or Stanford 
We're not even going to talk about the fact that these medicines are clinically approved and FDA approved. We're just going to give them an experience that's beautiful and considered and thoughtful. And we're going to give them an experience of products that actually work. And when they show that they work, you'll build trust even further. So it was a bit of a different approach, but I think it's something that was very different compared to the rest of the market and has has really set the business apart. A lot of what you just described resonates. It's almost with him's and hers, the interface with the user is so seamless that you almost don't realize you're purchasing prescription medication or some treatment for erectile dysfunction. You feel like you're purchasing an experience and one more thing that you're ordering as part of your normal routine. So I do think that's an acute observation about how people experience healthcare and how it can be better. And one thing I do want to touch on that you mentioned earlier is around the cost of care. So I think this is an endemic in the US and countries all over the world, but something that COVID has sort of exacerbated, which is how uneven pricing is and how non-transparent yeah. the cost of certain services and products are across the entire spectrum. So how is Hims and Hers able to provide the type of care at affordable prices without relying on those insurance providers? Yeah, it's a great question. The way that we deliver our prices, because on, on the Hims and Hers platform, everything is shockingly affordable. Everything is about $20 to $30 per month. And that includes the doctor, the medical visits, the ongoing care with that visit, 24-7 access to the team, the clinical team, also the medication, and it delivered to your door. And that medication being personalized for you. And it's 20 to 30 bucks a month. And most of the times you go to the doctor and you pay your copay just to see the doctor once. And that's 30 bucks, right? Just once. So it's really affordable. It's all included. And the way we were able to do that was essentially building the system entirely outside of traditional healthcare. So we essentially verticalized the whole healthcare system, but rebuilt it in a cloud-first, digital-first manner. We have a network of doctors licensed across the country in every single state in the nation, and they're specialists in Durham, sexual health, sleep, anxiety and depression, psychiatric services. But by putting them essentially remote in the cloud, we don't have the costs of a brick and mortar hospital system. And so all of that labor, all of those, all that rent, all of the administrative cost of running this huge healthcare system, we don't have. We have the doctors from their living room on a laptop. So we were able to save that money and we were pass it along, pass it back to the customer, right? And reduce the price. Same thing with the actual medications. We partner with pharmacies and actually are opening up our own pharmacy, a 300,000 square foot pharmacy in Ohio that will be distributing all of this medication to our patients. So instead of CVS and Walgreens taking a markup or McKesson or the drug supply chain taking, even middlemen taking markups, we're doing it directly, going direct to the wholesaler and distributing it ourselves. So you save five, 10 bucks there and you can pass it right back to the customer. It's a case study in the inefficiency of a legacy system and how everybody in healthcare says it's so complex, it's impossible to have something be transparently priced and affordable. It's like, well, it is impossible if you try to iterate on the existing system. But if you say, well, all you need is doctors and the medicine and the patients, and you rebuild the system with those three things in mind from scratch, it's absolutely possible to deliver these things in affordable price points and affordable ways. And I think that's really what we've built. And, and I honestly believe that that's the health system, what we've built will be the health system that is used by the majority of the country in the next five and 10 years. A lot of inefficiencies you describe are very much like I see they're sort of entrenched in the systems of incentives and, and payment that we have today. 
With COVID, I think the other part is consumers are now much more sensitized and familiar with more telehealth models and may actually be what they prefer because of the accessibility and the decrease in cost, especially when you see your doctor maybe for what, eight to 10 minutes at most when you do an in-person visit. So is that where you see the shift, especially exacerbated or maybe accelerated by COVID? And, And do you see that in some of maybe your competitors or even more institutional traditional provider systems as well? Yeah, you know, there has been a wave growing in the last five and 10 years, which has been the delta between customers' expectation of healthcare and the reality of healthcare. More and more, and specifically the the youth, they and we expect an experience that's digitally native. I want to pick up my phone and access it. It's fully transparent. I want to see how much things cost from the beginning, and it's on demand. I want to click a button and get it. So many companies exist in that fashion. Healthcare does not. And so in the last five and 10 years, there's been a growing divide, a growing frustration with the young generation that's saying, hey, the healthcare system doesn't behave how I want it to behave and how I expect it to behave. And so that has been a tailwind for the business, for our business for a long time. I think what happened with COVID is it accelerated that adoption curve of frustration almost overnight you know, where 10% of the population had experienced telemedicine last year, something like 80% of the population had experienced it by the end of this year. And so what was already happening, I think, got rocket fuel attached to the back of it in the last year. And it really probably compressed 10 years of transition into a couple. But that sentiment and that frustration and that divide between kind of the consumer first experience expectations that this new demographic expects. And the fact that the legacy healthcare system hasn't changed in 60 years has always been there and has been getting worse for a long time. And so I do think that the virus has exposed that and accelerated that, but it's something that that has been happening and I think will just continue to happen. And I think it's why Hims and Hers has really resonated with young people in particular so, so much. One thing I'm also curious about in terms of how you bring this vision of a optimized model of care to fruition, especially across the United States, is the regulatory landscape. So, you know, healthcare is one of the most heavily regulated industries, but also that the regulations may be quite different state by state. And especially with COVID, there's been some sort of emergency authorizations or things that have changed temporarily, unclear if that change will be institutionalized. And so, how has Hints and HERS navigated? sort of the evolving regulatory landscape for telehealth, especially balancing all the different services and products that Hims and Hers is offering. Was that challenging at all? Or, or how do you go about sort of scaling that? Yeah, you know, the, our government affairs, government relations, public policy team at, at Hims and Hers is, is wonderful. And they spend a lot of time meeting with state legislators, with attorney generals, with medical boards on a state-by-state basis, showing them the benefits of digital health. And it's no surprise, I think, to technologists where, you know, when you track something via technology, you can standardize things with technology, right? Because you have visibility into how doctors behave, how patients benefit, what their adherence is to medication, are their symptoms getting better? It's literally, you can print it out in an Excel doc and you can see that you're making improvements or you're getting worse. And the traditional healthcare system doesn't behave that way, right? It's hundreds of thousands of doctors making independent decisions every single day. So you might live in rural Kansas and see a doctor 
for anxiety and depression. And that doctor has no knowledge of cognitive behavioral therapy that's being taught at the best universities and the best research institutions in the country. And so that patient in rural Kansas is getting you know, treatment from 10 years ago, and it's a problem. And so what telemedicine does, what digital medicine does, is it allows the standardization of best practices, of clinical protocols, allows everybody in this country, no matter the zip code and no matter the doctor they're seeing, to get the absolute highest quality, best care. And when you show that data to legislators and when you show that data to medical boards, they get it and they're excited about it. And I think when you show them that by offering this type of experience from a mobile device, we're getting millions of patients to come interact with the system where they otherwise would not, they get that too. And more people seeing doctors is a good thing, right? And so the beautiful thing about our business, it has been a tremendous amount of effort to get the data and educate the policy makers and the legislators and the medical boards. But when you show them it, they have been overwhelmingly excited. And so it's one of the only issues actually in US politics, which is supported on a bipartisan basis. Republicans love it because it gets access to their rural communities. Democrats love it because it gets better access to their urban communities. It's a thing that everybody can agree on is better. And in a lot of situations, nobody really loses. It's just a net net for everybody. It's better experience, better quality of care, better access, better pricing. And so we've been able to navigate that, I think, really well. And I think we've been really thankful that the policymakers and the legislators and the medical boards have been really open to working with us and adjusting as they see data and as they learn. That makes a lot of sense. And that's very optimistic to hear Obviously, this is sort of pushing in the system to change. I'm curious to also understand how you see broader systemic changes, especially from a policy perspective within the United States. There's a lot more traction with the public about where the healthcare system is fundamentally flawed in its current state, and especially with the incoming presidency. What you see are the biggest areas or potentials for broader reform in the U.S. healthcare system. There's a tremendous amount of work that needs to, to get done. But I think what the virus has exposed to everybody, or I think everybody that is willing to actually think about it, is that there needs to be safety nets for the population in this country. Every other major established country in the world has the guaranteed safety nets of basic healthcare for their population, except the United States. And so whether or not that is a Medicare for all policy, whether or not that is a public option on Obamacare, I don't know if it really matters. I don't really know if the verbiage is anything other than kind of political rant, you know, rants, but a safety net for all people, regardless of their employment status, has to exist. And it has to be a high quality safety net. An employment-based care program where you are entirely dependent on being covered by your employer is incredibly dangerous. It's dangerous for everybody. And I think the pandemic has exposed that danger where you have families unable to take sick leave, unable to afford to stay at home. And it's, I think, frankly, tragic. And so I am hopeful that one of the silver linings of this horrifically devastating year is that people can finally get to the point where they agree on the necessity of kind of a, a basic level of care for people and a basic expectation of care for people in the country. 
And so I think that's a really good place to start. And I think it's probably one of the most high impact places to start. Definitely. the Especially now with sort of more gig economy workers and contractors and the new referendums passing California, allowing for companies like Uber, et cetera, to not provide some of those That's health right. insurance guarantees, that does create a huge gap in That's terms right. of more and more people and, and their nebulous employment statuses. And I know COVID is something we've mentioned throughout the interview. It's something that's been top of mind for everyone as we wrap this year. But also want to understand how COVID-19 has shaped Kim's and hers as a company in terms of your internal company operations and culture, and also how it's shaped the offerings that you're now prioritizing, bringing to your member consumers. Yeah, it's had really kind of momentous impact in in both of those areas, how we work on a day-to-day basis and, and also how we think about how we can help people. You know, on the work front, earlier this year, we decided to be a remote first company indefinitely not just through the term of COVID, but actually for the rest of the company's remaining life. And what that means is that we have dozens of headcount open, and you could be in the middle of the country, the coast of the country, Canada, Mexico, Nigeria. We just hired one of our first engineers in Nigeria, which is awesome. You know, you can be literally anywhere in the world and work for hims and hers full-time. That is, I think, without question, the future. It is without question the way to get the best access to talent in the world. It's the best way to bring diverse perspectives and diverse talent into your organization. And I think all of those things will compound to be real competitive advantages to winning in a very competitive market. And so we've committed to do that. And now it's the process of getting good at that and learning how to keep teams united and feeling aligned and communicating regularly, but I am 100% committed to that as a go-forward plan. And I fully expect you know, the rest of the country to catch up to that where you know, in industries that they're capable of doing so. So I think that's been a huge change for us as a company this year, and, and I'm excited about it. The second, as you said, is just you know, the offerings that we have on the platform and kind of thinking about that a little bit differently based on the virus. And I think we've changed a lot. You know, at the beginning of this year, as COVID started to occur throughout the country, we got together as a board and a management team. And I think just asked kind of the basic question of how do we do our part to help? We have a network of hundreds of doctors. We have a telemedicine platform. We have drug delivery to the home. We have all of the core components that can help people during a time like this. And so what we decided to do is essentially compress two or three years of our product roadmap into something like three to four months. And we used the virus as an emotional catalyst for the team to get super energized and to not sleep for a few months and try to get out a lot of offerings that could help people right then and there. So those included things like at-home testing for COVID-19. So we were in partnership with the FDA and Rutgers University, uh, the first company to launch an at-home saliva-based test. So you just spit in a tube and you mail it back, um, and then we can get you your result. So we launched that, I believe, in March. After that, or right around that time, we launched a full at-home primary care service. So for $39, which is very, very affordable, you can jump onto him's or hers, click a button, and start talking to a doctor. Um, And that can be about getting a refill of your birth control. It could be about a UTI. It could be about a migraine. It could be about a sinus infection. Whatever the basic issue is, the doctors are 
internal medicine, family medical kind of primary care, they can help you with that issue. And then lastly, then this was just a few months ago, we launched a full behavioral health suite. So you now have the ability for a very affordable price to come onto the Hims and Hers platform, meet with a psychiatric professional, get evaluated and understand where you sit for things like anxiety and depression if you're not feeling well or yourself and get treated on an ongoing basis with very safe medications and very safe oversight for those two issues. Obviously, all three of those, I think, were in uniquely high demand this year. And I think a lot of them, including things like mental health, have been in high demand for a long time and only growing. And so those have been you know, really exciting to be able to energize the team around and to be able to get those offerings to people uh, that really need it during this time. Definitely on the mental health, I, I know that that's been an issue that's been a specter and stigmatized, of course, historically. And I know part of the Hims and Hers platform is about destigmatizing issues that people may not want to talk about and making sure that those issues are addressed. Also, with sort of some of these new services, I'm wondering if Hims and Hers is also modifying the care model to be more preventative or sort of with things like behavioral health, marrying different social determinants of health, prevent a potentially more adverse health outcome for folks, kind of like in a more value-based system of care model, or is it still mostly sort of fee-for-service where you sort of listen to the patients or the consumers tell you what services they need versus being more proactive in terms of telling them what services they ought be taking to make sure that they're mitigating the worst case outcome? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a mix of both. I think what I've seen is there's such a gap in people getting high quality care in this country that even just as a first step, getting people access to a doctor so that they can talk to that doctor about something and get treated is still a massive gap. It's a huge need. And so I don't even think, to be honest, we're at the point yet as a company or as a country, we're even capable yet of talking about how to be in somebody's life all day and be preventative and, and, and prevent those adverse aspects and, and holistic care. I think we're still at a point where 80% of rural counties in this country don't have doctors within an hour or two drive. And so the divergence of quality of care that people have and the access that people have in this country is just only getting broader. And I think it's really about up-leveling and standardizing that care, at least as a baseline, you know, hopefully as a first step. So we mentioned this at the beginning, but congratulations on the upcoming IPO. What is behind your vision for taking the company public at this point in the company's life cycle? Yeah, we're really excited about this. We'll be listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker HIMS in the next coming weeks. And, you know, it's something, frankly, that we've been thinking about and planning for probably from just six months after launching the business. The company is just under three years old. So from the very moment we launched, we kind of saw the unique product market fit. We saw the growth and we knew we had to start getting prepared. And so at this point, you know, we just feel really confident about where the business is. We've powered you know, millions of medical visits on the platform. We're live in all 50 states. We have an incredible foundational business growing you know, year over year, 90 plus percent, 76 percent gross margins, earning very little capital. So it's a high growth high margin business. And I think we're in the earliest of innings with regard to what the business is capable of. And so, you know, as a public market investor, just myself as a capital markets investor, I don't see businesses like Hims and Hers 
very often. And I think in the last five and 10 years, there has been a shortage of great growth, high potential companies in the public markets, which has resulted in everyone throwing their money in Facebook and Amazon and Google and Microsoft and all of those or Tesla. And so I think there's a real opportunity to bring something really unique to the public markets. I think people really believe and understand that the healthcare system needs innovation and needs to be revolutionized. Now more than ever, I think they understand that. And being able to couple something that has that type of potential in such a large multi-trillion dollar industry, but also with a brand people love and a really sound business model that continues to improve. I just think that's a rare story to see in the public markets and something that really needs to be shared. Yeah, it's very exciting. And so to wrap up the section on Hims and her specifically, want to end with a question of what's next? What's your vision moving forward for Hims and hers? You know, the vision has been and I think continues to be the same, which is to be the front door to people in this country for their healthcare, to be the brand and platform that they trust and respect and rely on, to seek treatments for dozens of things in their lives or their families' lives that, that they're struggling with, and to be able to deliver that in a way that's price transparent, affordable, accessible to all, and really empowers people with choice and gives people the options and the information necessary to make really great decisions for themselves. And so I think that vision will continue to be our vision, and you'll see us continue to expand into new areas and hopefully help more people as we continue to grow. Great to hear. I want to pivot now, hearing your reflections and advice on how to navigate your career and what were some of the biggest learnings you've had throughout your multiple careers? That's a big question. You know, I think one of the more important learnings is to spend your time uh, and invest in your career in things you love doing because it's pretty obvious that those who are most successful are only successful because they're really thriving and enjoying what they're doing. It unlocks, I think, a a different level of quality, a different level of drive, a different level of grit, um, a different level of excitement and energy to get up and do stuff. That doesn't mean I don't really subscribe to this idea of, you know, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Like, I think that's mostly bullshit. I think anything you do that you love is actually a lot of work and is a lot of hard work. But there is a real difference in output and in outcomes, I think, when people are passionate about the things they work on. And so I think optimizing in that area really kind of tilts the scales in your direction of hopefully doing something unique and delivering something pretty special. That makes sense. And Hims and Hers itself is a platform that provides a lot of care for others knowing that your job is a lot of hard work and that has sort of physical and mental tolls as well. How do you balance your personal health with a very rigorous work agenda? I think I just try to keep it in perspective, right? I think, you know, my wife and I try to balance the fact that you really can't be an amazingly high performing executive. My wife's a CFO. If you're not sleeping well, if you're not feeling level, if you're not eating right, if you don't have the energy, if you're anxious or overwhelmed. And so I think we've just seen actually the economic benefits of balance and performance benefits of balance. And so as a result, we try to prioritize that a lot. And it's kind of a self-fulfilling, kind of reconfirming circle as you do that. But it's not hard to find balance 
and to prioritize balance once you actually see you know, the performance different and the actually potential economic difference of pulling it off. And I think especially with the telehealth, making it more accessible so you can kind of do it on your own time versus having to schedule something and That's having right. to commute definitely reduces some of that overhead. Yeah, absolutely. And now a lot of our listeners after hearing all of that are most likely very excited about potential hiring opportunities at Hims and Hers. And so here, one thing you touched on earlier is around this remote first model of work. How has that shaped the culture at Hims and Hers? And how would you describe the employee experience because of this remote first approach? I would probably describe the culture and, and the team as you know the smartest team I've ever worked with who are not assholes. <laughs> you know, to be really simply, like put simply, it's it's a really brilliant team with incredible amounts of passion. It's a very small team. And so the autonomy and the independence and the the ownership levels are extremely high. Uh, and that's very intentional. You know, we'll, we'll go public in the coming weeks and the company has 100 or 150 people. You know, most of the time, these companies have thousands of people. And what that means is that one person is responsible for a lot. And for the right person, that's really exciting. And that's really fun. And that's the way to learn. You know, that's the way to accelerate kind of your career. And so I think we've attracted really high performance, independent thinkers and really diverse set of thinkers given the remote dynamics of the business. And I think those are the types of people we are hoping to attract as we keep scaling. And is there anything specific or general trait that Hims and Hers looks for in potential successful candidates? You know, I think I think there's a lot of things we look for. I think things that really matter to me are an attitude of anything is possible. It's just about figuring it out. Hims and Hers, I think, has proven that most standards can be broken. Most things that are expected don't have to end up that way. Most best practices are only best practices because nothing better has come up yet, right? And so I believe that people that approach business and opportunities in that fashion end up having a breakthrough level of, of creativity and, and potentially outcome. Um, and then I think a ridiculous amount of grit to get there is also necessary. You know, So people that have been willing to dedicate years of their life to something, whether that's music, art, performance, work, business, whatever it is, language, you know, I think people that have that track record of not giving up and fluctuating with the ups and downs and knowing that that's part of the process, I think also really thrive in a hard, high, fast growth world like that that we live in with hims and hers. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for your time and comments. Are there any last guides or just general advice or tidbits that you want to impart on our listeners? You know, I would encourage everybody to just be thoughtful and to take a little bit of extra time in thinking about the directions that they want to invest their life and career. I actually think the virus in a lot of ways has created a new degree of flexibility in the country with regard to work, with regard to lifestyle, with regard to career that maybe didn't exist a year ago. And so that doesn't necessarily mean it's time to reevaluate your whole life, but I think it's worth a moment of time and, and thinking about the things you value and the things that you're excited to pursue and see if you're oriented in the right direction. Awesome. Thank you so much for this closing remark. We really appreciate it. Your time, Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. For more information about job opportunities at Hims and Hers, 
you can check out their job board at boards.greenhouse.io forward slash hymns hers.